Our Father, as we come to you today, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the knowledge that you do your work through your word. And so we pray today, Lord, that through the power of your spirit, we may gain understanding, and not just gain understanding, but a desire to obey for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you're new here, you might not realize every first Sunday of the month we do a parable. Today we're going to continue in our series in which we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And given that Thanksgiving is, like I said, two or three weeks away or something like that, I could think of no parable that was more appropriate than one that's going to teach us something about having a sense of gratitude, having a sense of thankfulness. Now we all kind of naturally, instinctively realize that when we're thankful for something, it changes our attitude toward the person or the thing that we are thankful for. It changes our actions because our attitudes are changed as well. Last month we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and most of you guys are familiar with that story anyway. Let me ask you for just a moment to put yourselves into the feet of the, good, of, of the, the person who was beaten, who was helped by the Good Samaritan, and let me ask you how you would feel, how your attitude toward this Good Samaritan would have changed. This guy who was your enemy, your sworn enemy for life, who just helped you and enabled you to live, how would your perspective have been changed toward the Samaritans? Let's say that one night you're on a cruise, and one night you accidentally fall overboard, and nobody notices except for one person. One person notices, he alerts the crew, and the crew alert the captain, he turns the boat around, they send out a crew on an inflatable raft to save your life. Who would be so braggadocious, to use a currently popular word, who would be so bold, so arrogant as to boast about how well they saved themselves climbing into the raft, taking all the credit for themselves that they survived. I mean, can you imagine somebody getting back on board and saying, hey, did you see the way I climbed into that raft? Have you ever seen such, such a demonstration of skill and dexterity in your entire life? I think we'd all, uh, we, we can agree, right? We recognize an insane reaction when we see one, right? We recognize that somebody would have to be insane to get on board and start bragging that way. I think it's a lot more likely and, um, and, and sane, to be honest, that you would thank everybody who was involved in saving your life because you were going to die. You would be much more likely to be thankful to the, the people who were out on the, the inflatable raft, who, who dragged you into the raft, the, the captain, and most of all, probably the person who first alerted the crew that you had fallen overboard. I mean, I, I think that at the very least, you'd, you'd want to buy them a, a nice steak dinner or something, right, to, to thank them. Why? Why would you want to do that? Because when we're thankful for something, it changes our attitudes and it changes our actions. And the more thankful we are, the more it changes our attitudes and our actions. So our lesson today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, where we find a parable on 
grace and gratitude. And the principle that we're going to see in our passage today is that gratitude, thankfulness, is the natural response to grace. Gratitude is the natural response to grace. And the way that gratitude is expressed or demonstrated by an individual, that's going to vary from person to person, how they express that. But in one way or another, gratitude will be expressed. So let's start just by looking at verse 36 together. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 says this. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. If you know the story of Jesus, if you know what he did when he was walking the face of the earth, you know that one of the more remarkable and maybe even controversial things that he would do, that he was known to have done, was to dine with tax collectors and dine with other sinners who were looked down upon by the religious community. Now, just a quick side note here before we really get rolling. Some people will justify close affiliation with sinners by pointing out that Jesus would often run around with a crowd of sinners. So they take that and they say, well, Jesus ran around with godless people. I can run around with godless people. And they'll say, well, you know, Jesus made friends with them, so I can make friends with them too. And that's not such a bad thing, but I would warn very strongly against having your closest companions be people who would lead you away from God. And in such a case, it would seem that the person doesn't realize who they are in those narratives where Jesus is dining with sinners. No, you are not Jesus. You are the sinner. The point of those stories is not that you should go off and and eat with a bunch of people who are going to lead you astray. No, the point of those passages is that Jesus came down and sought fellowship with people who were sinners, who were known as sinners. So when Jesus dines with sinners, it isn't a picture of you dining with sinners. When Jesus hangs around with sinners, it's not a picture of you hanging around with sinners. It's a picture of Jesus dining with us. As I was saying, Jesus would dine with sinners. Yes, it was controversial, but he did it. He did it. And sometimes he would do something even more controversial than that. He'd dine with Pharisees from time to time. And on this occasion, a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus over to his house for dinner. And we're going to learn this Pharisee's name when we get to verse 40. His name's Simon. And we aren't told much about Simon. There's really no no history that we have about Simon. There's no uh, backstory about Simon, how he invited Jesus, where he invited Jesus, why he invited Jesus. We don't know. We're simply told that Simon invites Jesus to dinner. And that upon arriving at Simon's house, Jesus walks in and he reclines at the table, which was the custom in the first century. They didn't have tables where you sat down, you know, like squarely like this. No, they actually laid on their left side with their left arm here and ate with their right hand. So Jesus does this. He comes in and he reclines at the table. And it would be very easy for us to miss the fact that there are some very important cultural norms pertaining specifically to hospitality, which are completely missing from this part of the story. Things that were cultural signs of welcoming someone of even moderate reputation, even moderate esteem into your home, which Simon fails to do. Part of being a a good 
hospitable host in the first century involved, first of all, greeting your guests with a kiss on the cheek, just a kiss on the cheek. It's a, it's a sign of, of courtesy and respect and, and welcoming somebody into your home. They also would wash the feet of their guests as they came into their home. Again, these are just courteous gestures and signs of, uh, of good hospitality in the first century culture. It's going to be different in our day and age, but we do have signs uh, that are kind of expected when somebody comes to your house to have dinner. Uh, cultural norms. Theirs were kissing on the cheek to welcome them and washing their feet. So, understanding this much helps us to set the stage for this parable about gratitude. So we continue in verses 37 to 39. Luke chapter 7, verses 37 to 39 say this. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner." Speaking of cultural norms, we should also understand that when a person invited guests over for dinner, it wasn't a private event most of the time. It wasn't a private event. That would be very normal in our culture. If I invite somebody over for dinner and the neighbors all start showing up, that's weird. I I don't want that. You know, I I, I want just the, the person I invited because that's what our culture does. But it would have been extremely unusual and inhospitable in the first century. Life in the first century was extremely community-oriented. If you invited somebody over for dinner, the door was open to anyone and everyone who wanted to, to come in and sit not at the table, but around the outside walls in the room where the table would be found, where they would listen to and sometimes get involved in the conversation that was taking place at the table. This helps us to understand why we're now introduced to a third person in this story, in this passage, and that is this woman. She goes unnamed. Luke doesn't tell us what her name is. Some speculate that this was maybe a, uh, some, some, one of the Marys that Jesus was involved with, but honestly, we don't know who this is. We, we really have no conclusive evidence as to who this is at all. But instead of telling us who she is, Luke simply tells us what she is. She's a sinner. She is a sinner. What kind of sinner? What's, what's her sin? We have no idea. We have no idea. Luke doesn't tell us what her sin is. And again, there's, there's, that, that leaves it open for a lot of speculation, but really we don't need to speculate here. The point is, it doesn't matter what her sin is. It doesn't matter what her sin is. She is a sinner. And the fact that she is a sinner of, of any kind means that you and I should be able to immediately relate to her on some level. This woman had apparently entered the house along with all the other uninvited guests. And given what Luke has told us about her, how it was kind of public knowledge that she was a sinner who wasn't even worthy of touching the religious leaders, it seems likely that she would have been either or, or both ignored and scorned by all the people who were at this 
dinner party. But we immediately see that she hadn't come for the sake of being social. She hadn't come for the sake of being accepted by the crowd, being part of the crowd. She hadn't come for the camaraderie that she would have with all the other sinners who came in with her. She wasn't even there to honor the host, which was one of the reasons that people would come in and fill the house. She wasn't even there to honor the host as the others would have been. No, she was there for one reason and one reason alone. Jesus was there. Jesus was there. She had come to stand by Jesus. She had come to express gratitude, thankfulness to Jesus. She had come to worship Jesus. And even though this woman had been labeled a sinner, and even though she'd been rejected and scorned and cast aside by society, she thought to herself, as awful as I am, as great a sinner as I am, as rejected by everybody as I am, I don't believe that Jesus will reject me. I believe that He'll accept me, and He'll accept my expression of gratitude. And so she boldly enters the house and comes to be near Jesus. And as she stood behind Jesus at the table, she starts weeping. She starts weeping bitterly over her sin. Paul would say that there are two types of grief. There's a godly grief that leads to repentance, which leads unto salvation. And there's a worldly grief that produces death. And this woman is a picture of the first. She's a picture of the type of repentance, the type of godly grief that leads to salvation. She knows she's a sinner. She's more aware than anybody in there except Jesus of what a sinner she is. And she hates her sin. And she knows that were she to stand before God in that moment, she would say, I deserve no mercy. And that's the type of repentance that God honors. That's the type of repentance that leads to salvation. And so she weeps over her sins bitterly right there in front of everybody. And as her tears begin to fall from her cheek, onto the feet of Jesus. All she can do is fall to her knees. All to, she can do is fall to, the, to her knees at the feet of Jesus and her tears begin falling off of her cheeks onto Jesus' feet and her hair is hanging down in front of her face and she begins wiping her tears off of his feet with her hair. And as her tears wipe the dirt from his feet, she begins kissing his feet. She continues kissing his feet, trying to express express her, her gratitude, her thankfulness, her devotion unto Him by worshiping at His feet. And she breaks open this, this alabaster jar of perfume. By the way, in the first century, going back to court, cultural norms again, an alabaster jar full of perfume was extremely expensive. This was not cheap stuff. In other words, this isn't the, the cheap perfume that you can buy at 7-Eleven, uh, this is the, the finest perfume that you can buy at Macy's. This gift, this expression of gratitude and devotion cost her, and it cost her greatly. How does Jesus respond 
to her expression of gratitude, to, to her worship. He receives it. He receives it. He accepts it. In fact, I think we can honestly say he's pleased by it. He's pleased by her expression of gratitude. But Simon, the Pharisee here, is offended. And here what we see is that Simon's motivation for inviting Jesus over for dinner is revealed. He invited Jesus over for dinner because he was skeptical about Jesus. He had issued the invitation to dinner to Jesus as a means of putting Jesus on trial so that he could judge for himself what kind of a prophet or what kind of a teacher this Jesus really was. And as this woman expresses gratitude toward Jesus, Simon starts thinking to himself, any self-respecting rabbi in the world would have rebuked this horrible sinner of a woman by now. He's thinking to himself that if Jesus was truly a prophet, he would have known what a deplorable, awful, vile sinner this woman was. And he would reject her just like he, just like Simon had, and just like any righteous person would in Simon's mind. Now keep in mind that these are only Simon's thoughts. Luke's telling us that this is what Simon is saying only to himself. These are only Simon's thoughts. He doesn't realize that Jesus, whom Simon was judging superficially, that Jesus was looking into Simon's heart and he was judging him. Do you see what's happening here? Simon is judging both Jesus and the woman based on what he sees externally, what he knows externally. But Jesus, Jesus is looking at the hearts of Simon and this woman. And that's what gives rise to the opportunity for us to hear Jesus tell a parable. So we continue looking at the parable. Luke chapter 7, verses 40 to 43. It says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have judged rightly. What's revealed here is that Jesus is indeed a prophet. He knew exactly what Simon was even thinking. He knew exactly what was going on in Simon's heart. And so he uses a parable to correct Simon's thinking. And this parable is very short. It's very succinct. It's simple. It's, it's straight to the point. There are two people, two characters in this parable. The only noteworthy difference between the two is that they owe different amounts to this money lender. But they are both so deeply in debt that neither of them will ever be able to pay off their respective debt. Now, don't get lost in the details here. Don't worry about how, uh, how much a denarii is or what a denarii represents. That's not the point. The point is that neither of these characters is able to repay their debt to this money lender. 
in our day and age. Let's say that you've got two people, and, and this guy over here owes $500 billion, and this person over here owes $5 trillion, and neither one of them has a job that allows them to even pay off the interest. How ridiculous would it be for us to say, well, which one of them's going to pay off their loan first? It's not going to happen. That's the point. It's not going to happen. Neither is going to pay off their debt. Now, first things first here. What does justice require of the money lender in such a situation? What does justice require that the money lender do toward these two debtors who cannot pay off their debt? Nothing. Justice requires nothing. Justice only requires that the debt be paid off in full. So the money lender can do one of three things. Number one, he can just leave it as it is. He can require that the debt be paid off, forgiving neither one of them, and that would be perfectly just, perfectly ethical. His second option is that he can forgive one of them, but not the other. Again, that's perfectly just. There's nothing that makes him obligated as a lender uh, toward both if he decides to forgive the debt of one. His third option is even though he's not obligated in any way, shape, or form to do so, he can forgive the debt of both. Purely out of mercy, purely out of love and and compassion in himself. And of course, we see this as an illustration of God's grace. We see this as an illustration of God's forgiveness unto sinners. But Jesus is making a point here that gratitude is a natural response to grace. And that the more grace a person requires, the greater their gratitude will be toward the one who forgives them. And so Jesus puts the ball in Simon's court. Who's going to love the moneylender more? And Simon gets it. Simon sees the point of the story. He understands the parable. And Jesus tells him, you've judged rightly. And if we're being honest, if we're seeing what's going on here, we understand that this is the first thing that Simon has judged correctly all night. He had misjudged absolutely everything that was going on up to this point. Simon had misjudged Jesus, first of all. He'd misjudged Jesus thinking that if Jesus was really a prophet, if Jesus was anything really special, if Jesus was really righteous, if Jesus was really holy, he would have rejected the woman as the sinner that she was. But he's got two assumptions behind that uh, that understanding. First, he assumed that if Jesus really were a prophet, he'd know what a vile and deplorable sinner this woman was. That's his first assumption. His second assumption is that if Jesus knew what a sinner this woman was, if he knew what a deplorable, vile sinner this woman was, he would reject her. And what we see here is that Jesus did know what a sinner she was. He was completely aware of what a sinner she was. But he also saw her godly repentance. He also saw that the burden of sin in her heart was causing her heart to break. And so therefore, instead of casting her away as Simon would have if he had been in Jesus' shoes, Jesus welcomes her. 
Jesus welcomes her and he receives her expression of gratitude, her expression of of worship. So Simon had completely misjudged Jesus. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is holy. But he's also forgiving toward anyone and everyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. Simon had also misjudged the woman. He not only misjudged Jesus, he misjudged the woman. He judged her based on her past. He was judging her based on externals, external things, external behaviors, rather than by the transformation that had taken place inside of her heart. Simon thought that this woman was surely unworthy of being loved and forgiven by anyone, much less by God. And so Simon had completely misjudged Jesus, and Simon had completely misjudged this woman. But we also must see that Simon also misjudged himself. What Simon failed to realize is that he was a sinner too. What Simon failed to realize is that he was just as desperately in need for the grace of God, for the forgiveness from God as this woman was. What Simon failed to realize is that he was at his very core a sinner, deeply, deeply in bondage to sin, unable to free himself, unable to atone for his sin, unable to pay off this debt that he owed for his sin. And as Jesus is about to point out, Simon's Failure to see his own need for grace also resulted in his lack of gratitude toward Jesus. That's what we see in verses 44 to 49. We read this. Luke chapter 7, verses 44 to 49 say, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Simon's failure, his, his, his misjudging of himself and his own need for grace and for redemption and for forgiveness explains his lack of hospitality toward Jesus. And friends, the same principle applies to every single one of us as well. If it's true that gratitude, if it's true that, that thankfulness is the natural response to grace, What does that say about the person who goes through life feeling thankless toward God? What does that say about the person who's filled with a sense of entitlement rather than gratitude toward God? The principle that's coming to the surface here is that when we fail to see ourselves as the wretched, deplorable, vile sinners that we are, we don't understand how great our need for grace is. 
when we don't understand that we, we, are, we are sinful to the core without God's grace. We don't realize how desperately we need God's grace. And when we don't realize how great our need for grace is, of course we're not thankful for it. Our level of thankfulness corresponds to how clearly we understand the amount of grace we really need. Friends, we, we live in an age of entitlement, in, in which entitlement attitudes are absolutely everywhere. One commentator says that we live in an age of entitlement that is historically unprecedented. He said that in the 90s, by the way. How much more true is that today? And entitlement lives in the same house. It comes from the same family as ingratitude. Why are thankfulness or why are thanklessness and ingratitude and entitlement so pervasive in our culture? So so pervasive in our society. It's because we're thinking first and foremost about number one. We're thinking first and foremost about ourselves. Ultimately, it's a symptom of selfishness and pride. It all boils down to whether or not we have a right view of God. Because when we have a right view of God, we'll also have a right view of ourselves as well. So let me illustrate how this works. I personally hate traffic. Like really, really heavy traffic. You know, you're like in a, in a 60 on the freeway and you're going five miles an hour. That drives me absolutely nuts. I tend to get really frustrated, really impatient when traffic is, is really heavy and, and really slow. Let me ask you this. What's my attitude in those moments? I confess, it, it, it's not good. It's not good. How thankful am I in those moments? If I'm thankful at all, I'm not thankful enough. See, it's, it's me feeling entitled, feeling a sense of entitlement, feeling like I deserve to get to my destination when I want to get to my destination. It's ingratitude toward God. For the extra time that I have that I could be spending in prayer or meditating on the Word of God or uh, worshiping you know, to music in the car, and I... I Please tell me I'm not the only one who sings in the car, like full throttle, right? And as Christina, as my wife, has has reminded me on so many occasions, when traffic's heavy and slow and I'm getting impatient, the truth is I have no clue. I have no idea what God might be saving me from in that moment. So in that moment, what am I doing? I'm frustrated, I'm impatient. Because I've forgotten that God is sovereign over everything. Even sovereign over traffic. Is that crazy? Is that a crazy idea that God is sovereign over traffic? Because if we believe that God is sovereign over every molecule in the universe, and He is, then He's also sovereign over traffic. Is it possible that God can use traffic to make you more like Christ? Absolutely. See, in those moments when I'm getting frustrated, I've forgotten that God is sovereign over absolutely everything, even traffic. Maybe if traffic was moving at full speed, I'd get in a head-on collision and die. 
Is it possible that slow traffic is actually an expression of God's grace unto me? Is it possible? Of course it is. Of course it's possible. Can I prove that it's not God's grace unto me? Of course I can't. So here's the real question. In those moments, do I believe that God is sovereign over every situation in my life, over every circumstance in my life, and that he's causing all things, all things, including traffic, to work for my good as his child and his glory? Have I failed to see that God can even use a traffic jam to grow me in the likeness of Christ? When was the last time you thanked God for a season of suffering? When was the last time you thanked God for a moment where you were just totally at wit's end? Because the truth is, in that moment, if you're a child of God, His purpose was to make you more like Christ. Whether you're suffering or whether you're not, whether you're being persecuted or whether you're living comfortably, God is causing all things to work for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, that good being growth in the likeness of Christ. Now we've gotten to the heart of the matter, haven't we? When we have a right view of God, we'll also have a right view of ourselves. When we see Him as the holy God that He is, the righteous, flawless God that He is, we'll see ourselves as much, much less than. And when we have a right view of ourselves, we not only see how much grace we truly need, but we can also be thankful because we'll see just how much grace God has provided. Back to the passage here. Having received this worshipful expression of gratitude from this woman, Jesus tells the woman that her sins are forgiven. And and as you might expect, this raises a huge commotion among the people, wondering, wow, who who is this Jesus? It it raises some, some questions. Is she forgiven because of what she did? Is she forgiven because she, she brought this expensive alabaster jar of perfume? Is she forgiven because she washed his feet with her tears? Is this how it works? Is that how receiving grace works? Is my receiving grace dependent or, or contingent upon something that I do outwardly? Jesus is going to answer that for us just so there's no room for confusion. Let's look at verse 50 together. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let's make sure that we're clear about this. This woman was not forgiven because she worshipped. Jesus makes that abundantly clear for us. He doesn't give us any room to lose sight of how salvation works. It is her faith. It is her faith that has saved her. She doesn't worship in order to be forgiven. She worships because she is forgiven. And gratitude is the natural response to grace. Because of her faith. Though she entered in tears of repentance, she leaves in peace. Friends, the point of this passage and this parable is that you would consider the great cost of our salvation 
Every one of us has sinned more greatly than we realize, and thus every single one of us has only earned ourselves a debt unto God, which is greater than we are able to repay. Even if you had a million lives, you could not repay the debt that you would incur for your sin in one life. Consider the justice, the response that justice demands, that it would only require that God condemn us and send us to hell. He owes us nothing except judgment and condemnation. That's what justice demands. And yet, and yet, He invites us to the foot of the cross to behold the Son of God, to behold the crucified Christ Enduring the scorn of man, taking the sins of his people upon himself, and imputing, transferring, exchanging his own righteousness to every person in history who would place saving faith in him. He promises us that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and believes that he was raised from the grave will be saved. They will be forgiven of the debt that their sin has earned them redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Let me ask you this. Who are you in this story? Who are you in this passage? Are you the Pharisee? who looks down upon the sinner and says, you're not worthy of God. Are you the Pharisee who isn't broken over his own sin? Are you the one who stands in condemnation of even the one who would forgive? Or are you the woman? Are you the woman? Do you see how great your need for salvation is? Do you see how great your need for grace is? Do you see that you owe a debt that you could never repay? Are you comfortable with your sin? Are you just living in it as if it's nothing? As if you are entitled to just be happy, whatever that might mean? Or are you broken? Are you broken over your sin? Do you weep over your sin? Do you hate your sin? Is it a burden that you don't want to carry anymore? If you have not repented and believed in Christ Jesus, if you have not wept over your sin, then weep over the fact that you have not wept over your sin. Weep. See the greatness of this debt. Ask God to break your heart over your sin. Ask Him to grant you repentance, godly grief that leads to salvation. See how great your need for forgiveness is. See that you could never earn it. See that you could never deserve it. But you can receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, we don't love Christ or worship Christ in order to be forgiven. We love Him and we express gratitude toward Him because we are forgiven by grace through faith. As you consider how great your need is for grace, 
be filled with thanksgiving. Knowing that the wellspring of God's grace runs infinitely deeper than the depths of your sin, your greatest sin. Find a, a, a deeper sense of thanks, thankfulness, a deeper sense of gratitude in knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if you are clothed in His righteousness. And let us express our gratitude, rejoicing with thankful hearts that the King of kings and the Lord of lords has redeemed us, has forgiven us, has ransomed us, and that He invites us and He welcomes the brokenhearted to come and worship Him with expressions of gratitude for His overabundant grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the way it corrects our thinking, for the way it rebukes our godlessness. Father, we we pray to You knowing that we don't even deserve the right to come before You, that all that we have done is earn your wrath. But you sent your son out of your great love, out of your great mercy, you sent your son to pay the debt of any who would place saving faith in him. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. So Father, in light of our forgiveness, give us a deeper sense of thanksgiving toward you. Give us a deeper gratitude toward you for your grace, that we may glorify you, that we may glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, in all that we do. We live for his glory, and it's in his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.